0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guests. They've accomplished a lot, and I actually had to shorten their bio just so we could get to the interview, because I feel like I could go an hour just talking about accomplishments. But to get us started, she's an NCAA champion with Nebraska. She earned the Most Outstanding Player and National Player of the Year awards. She's an academic All-American, excuse me, I almost said Canadian there, with a 4.0 GPA. She's played pro indoor in some top leagues, including Italy, Brazil, and China. She's played for Canada in over 69 FIB events, winning 17 medals and finishing the top 10 39 times she's an Olympian she's a world champion please welcome to the show Sarah Pavan Sarah thanks for doing this
1: thanks for having me I'm excited
0: yeah this is great that we could connect I understand you're you're finally getting an off season right you guys have had a little bit of a break thanks to you know the world being paused but also just no competitions and things like that right
1: yeah I feel like this has been the longest off season in history um we have been kind of laying low since March but we are Officially in real off season now, so we actually know what's going on. So yeah, just doing my off season workouts and getting ready to start up in January.
0: Awesome, awesome. And we were lucky to get uh, your sister Becky on the show and just learning about you know your family's involvement. And I think our Ontario, Canada listeners would be familiar, but just for the other listeners outside that area, can you just talk about your parents' involvement in the sport and obviously what you and Becky accomplished? Like when did you start playing volleyball and when did you really get hooked that you you felt like you loved it and could make it a career?
1: Yeah, I'm really lucky that I grew up in a volleyball family. My mom and dad both played at Western. um, And then my mom went on to play for the national team for a while. So I was around the sport from birth. Um, My parents were both playing and coaching when I was really, really young. So I spent a lot of weekends in the gym at their senior A tournaments And I think, you know, in Canada especially, I don't think a lot of people really understand the opportunities available to volleyball players, but growing up in that environment and with a family so involved in the sport, I knew from a really, really young age that it was possible to get a scholarship and play. I knew that it was possible to be a pro volleyball player. So I set my sights on those goals at a really, really young age and um, my family completely empowered me and supported me in being able to do that right away. I started playing when I was 10. Volleyball is a super technical sport so it's not something that you can necessarily play at a high level really young. Um, I mean I started learning the skills when I was like three and was such a little gym rat but they finally let me start playing club when I was 10. Back then, it was called Bantam, so the youngest age group was, like, 14U. So I was 10, playing on a 14U team. Um, It was super awkward, but the girls were great. And, yeah, I, I played everything growing up, and I didn't, like, specialize in volleyball until university, but I knew from the age of five that I wanted to pursue this all out.
0: And what was your attitude in practice? Because I got a big laugh from Becky that sometimes, whether it was just like laughing or sometimes her face would be viewed as sarcastic by her dad, that uh, she would get kicked out of practice every once in a while, but, you know, still go for a slushy after practice or still be like, he, he could flip the switch from coach to dad pretty quick. I was wondering, were you a little bit more focused in practice and training when your dad was your coach or what was your relationship like as a young athlete and having your dad be the one trying to teach you skills and all that good stuff?
1: Um, it definitely had its ups and downs. I would say that (laughs) Becky and I are definitely like traditional oldest and youngest child. So I'm the oldest. I'm very type A. I was always very, very focused, very driven, um, where my sister was a little more of a free spirit and liked to test boundaries a little bit more. So my dad was very, very hard on both of us, where, but like I would take it very, very seriously, and I did not want um, him to like be mad or, you know, I didn't want to act out, but my sister liked to push <laughs> his boundaries a little bit more and see how much she could get away with. But yeah, sometimes it was hard for me to put it away when the practice was over, but for him, he could just move on really easily.
0: And you mentioned you knew at a young age that. You know you could get a scholarship and you could move on to a higher level so when did your recruiting phase really start like when did you feel like you started getting letters and started to draw some attention to either some canadian universities or or some ncaa schools
1: well back then the recruiting process was a little bit different Um, you could start getting recruited at any age and there were girls that started committing to schools as early as grade nine i remember i started getting a lot of attention in grade nine and as somebody who loves to get mail, I was very excited because there was always like letters and packages and like books and stuff in the mail. So I started actively getting recruited then, but I didn't make a decision until I was in grade 12.
0: Now confirm this, cause there are obviously a player of your stature. There's going to be stories out there When would you technically say you were a member of the indoor national team? Like, were you in high school when you first started training with the national team? Maybe not the senior team, but with Team Canada? Like, when was your entry to national team Canadian volleyball?
1: Well, it was actually, I made the senior a, like, women's team when I was 16.
0: So um, the rumors are true. Okay, good. Good to confirm that. Okay.
1: Yeah, the myth is true. But I actually started in the national team program with youth and junior stuff when i was 14. So it was i think i was just about to head into grade 9, so i was still really really young. And i got invited to the junior national team camp, so that was like 18U. And i made that and then played junior team and youth. I did both for a couple years and then in my grade 11 year i made the the senior women's team
0: now obviously being quite young was there a vet or a coach who kind of pulled you aside and let you know or did you have to figure out everything on your own because obviously your skills are at that level but I think just emotionally and maturity wise like you're hanging out with people who've played at university or professionally right so how did you deal with that situation that you were you were good enough to be there obviously but you know they probably weren't talking about English homework and exams and the stuff you had going on as a high schooler right
1: yeah uh, it was a really tough period for me i would say even you know playing club i was always the youngest two to three years younger than my teammates going to play youth and junior junior specifically i was a couple years younger than those girls and it's challenging even that situation is tough because you're just at a different level um, of maturity and life experience and to find common ground with girls that are even a couple years older than you at that age, it's a lot. But then, you know, being 16, I went into that tryout, seeing it as a learning experience, not expecting in the slightest that I would make the team. I just approached it as an opportunity to see where I stood in the country and, and what I would have to work on to get to that level of of being in the conversation with the best in our country. So I was shocked when I actually made the team. And it was a really, like I said, a challenging period because there were some, I was 16, there were some of the women were in their 30s. And I was terrified. I remember I would live in a house with a few of the girls. I had never cooked meals for myself because i was still in high school i didn't have a driver's license i i was very naive and um just inexperienced in life and i just it was tough the girls were great and they tried their best to to make me feel welcome and comfortable but it was a really really big challenge to connect and to feel like i belonged traveling to tournaments back then like skype wasn't even a thing so my friends would have to take all of my homework to my dad and he would fax it to whatever country i was in and i would do my homework in between practices or before games Um, while the other girls were doing recovery i would be doing my my high school homework and then even during school i would go home for a couple weeks, and then I'd have to go to Winnipeg to train for a couple weeks. And there were times when I just refused to leave my house. I just didn't want to go. There was a lot of tears and a lot of phone calls home crying. But my parents always reminded me of what my goals were and asked me, like, is staying and doing this going to help you be what you want to be? And the answer was always yes. So... Fought through it wasn't pretty. It was definitely a big challenge, but it definitely set the foundation for other challenges that I would face in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm just wondering, this was before the the social media era. I feel like our age, we we avoided some of the social media stuff, but I think you still reached the level yeah. where... You've accomplished so much at a young age. So when you come back to Ontario and you walk into a gym, I feel like everybody knows your name. And do you ever get comfortable with that, that like a whole room full of people knows who you are and you have no idea who they are? Like everybody probably has a a Sarah Pavin story, whether they played against you in high school or club, right? So how did you handle that kind of knowing that, you know, everyone had this story or this reputation about you and you just kind of wanted to go and play with your friends or play club volleyball? Like, do do you ever get used to that feeling of of the volleyball community knowing uh, who you are? Excuse me.
1: I don't think so. I am still of the mindset. Like when I go somewhere, I never expect anybody to know who I am like ever. So if people come up to me and and say hi or say, you know, we saw you play at Worlds or we watched you at Nebraska or something like that, I'm always so touched and also surprised because <laughs> I just... I don't ever think that people know or have paid attention. And at this point, I'm so much older than than kids playing club. And I've been out of the country for so long. It's it's really surprising, but it definitely means a lot because to me, it shows that people are paying attention to our sport and they've taken an interest in what the higher level athletes in our country are doing, which I think is super cool.
0: So with you involved with our our indoor national team at such a young age, was there ever any external pressure that you felt to go to a Canadian university? We've had some male athletes on the show talk about, you know, they were told that if they went to the NCAA, they probably can't play for the national team. Like once you go, you can't come back type of thing, which I don't think has ever been enforced. And we haven't actually found who started that rumor. But I'm wondering on the women's side, did you ever feel that or you knew that NCAA was going to be the route for you to meet your goals?
1: Yes, to both. (laughs) Um, so i heard those things i definitely received pressure um from people in the federation and involved with that that you know if you choose to go to the states it might not be the best for your national team career quite frankly i didn't care i knew what my goals were in the sport and they extended so much further than than being a national team athlete it extended to to a career to the Olympics and and for growing the game beyond my playing career so I knew that for me personally the choice to go to the states was the only way that I would excel and improve in the way that I wanted to now Going to the States, is it for everybody? Absolutely not. There are people who can do great things staying in Canada, for sure. But I knew that for me, personally, that was the route that I had to take. And nothing was going to stop me from doing that.
0: And you mentioned how much mail you were receiving as a teenager. When you had to narrow it down and start going on official visits what was your process? Did you want to go play in the Big Ten? Did you want to be close to home? Did it matter? Like big conference, small conference, big school, small school? Like what were some of the things that you put on your list that uh, really helped you narrow down all the offers you were getting?
1: Well, I knew that I wanted a really good education. That was first and foremost in my mind. I also wanted to play for a school who had a chance or who would be in the running to win a national championship. So that narrowed it down pretty quickly. Aside from that, I had a list of things that I wanted in a school. I had never lifted weights in high school. Don't recommend that to the kids today. (laughs) Get strong. But I just want, I knew that for career longevity, I would have to have a place that had a really strong strength and conditioning program because I knew that I would be majoring in something pretty intensive. I wanted to make sure that I had resources available to me Um, to help me because I would be missing school with my sport. So I wanted to know that I would be getting the best education possible while excelling at sport. Obviously, the coaches and the girls on the team, that was a huge thing. So I had narrowed it down eventually to probably like five or six schools. I made sure to visit every single one of them and, and check out the campus and get to meet the people face to face. And Honestly, it was really, really easy from there because there was only one school out of all the ones that I had narrowed down that had every single thing that I was looking for. And that was Nebraska.
0: Did you get to experience uh, a home match when you did your visit? Cause I'm just a shout out to the net live, another volleyball podcast. They've credited Nebraska that they're self-sustaining. Like I feel like the attendance and all the funding the women's volleyball program gets, they don't need to take money from the school. Like that's That's a real program with great facilities and things like that. So when you got the tour, were you just blown away at the the facilities and everything you'd have access to there?
1: It was unbelievable. Um, I had never seen anything like it. The academic facilities were world-class. The strength and conditioning facilities were absolutely amazing. I went to a match. It was completely sold out and People tend to think of volleyball as a secondary sport, but in Nebraska, it's football and volleyball. And I was just blown away by the support that the, the volleyball program got there. And yeah, they are self-sustaining. They're, their budget is huge, but they generate all that revenue themselves and it's, there's no place like it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And and a big chunk of our listeners are coaches. So what can you tell us about uh, John Cook and what makes him such a a top tier coach? Like what were some of your first impressions or, or lasting impressions that he had on your career?
1: Coach Cook was amazing at creating a team atmosphere. He would always have us doing these activities, which I'm not going to lie, that you don't really appreciate them as an 18 year old. (laughs) But (laughs) Looking back, he did such a great job of, you know, helping us figure out our team values, setting goals. Um, he was getting us to do sports psych stuff before it was mainstream. Um, you know, we would do yoga. We would go visit the biomechanist. So he was so good at creating a holistic athlete experience for us. He's very dry. Um, he's low-key funny, but... <laughs> You don't really see it because he's definitely got a very dry personality. But I think I credit a lot of what I'm doing to the way that I'm able to prepare my body off court. And I think the foundation for that was laid at Nebraska with all of the prehab and active recovery and, and mind work that we did there.
0: And what were some of your first impressions about playing on the road in the NCAA? Cause obviously the big 10 conference for women's volleyball, it, it's competitive every single year. And, friend of the show, Dana Cook, told us when she was at Michigan State, like you go to some other schools and their fan section is like they're doing research on you. Like they try to figure things out about you. So when they chirp, it's just not, hey, number nine, like you suck. It's like they know your hometown. They might even found like an ex-boyfriend. Like it's kind of offside some (laughs) of the stuff they can say. Right. So did you ever play in a hostile environment or what were some of those rivalry games like? Because you're playing at a team who who can win a national championship. So I imagine some of those road games would draw a pretty big crowd. Right
1: say that back when i played we were in the big 12
0: oh sorry um, see you gotta do more research yeah
1: so our biggest rival was texas but you're absolutely right <laughs> kids would do their homework obviously i was made fun of a lot for how tall i was and for how skinny i am but we had a pretty fiery team and we all had each other's back so um there wasn't a lot of trash talking being had after maybe like the first set. (laughs) So, I mean, it's something that you love and hate about sports is that people get so invested. It's the beauty of sport. As an athlete, it's annoying. It's hilarious. Some of the stuff that I heard was so funny. But I mean, in the moment, you don't really think about it.
0: Yeah. What was your style or what tips would you give to a younger athlete? Like, do you you obviously hear it like it's impossible to ignore it, but do you acknowledge it? Do you try to ignore it? Like you said, it would eventually calm down because you guys are obviously probably thumping the other team and there's not much to chirp about. Like what would be some strategies you use that it just, you didn't really let it in or let it affect you?
1: Um, I don't know. I think my, my strategy has kind of evolved over the years. <laughs> um, back then I would say I would ignore it to a point And then if i did something like like a huge block or a huge kill or something i'd make sure to like turn to them and like let them know so i always i kind of i would ignore it until i was just like okay enough's enough time to shut them up and then i'd like get in their face about it now i would say that i'm a little more interactive with the crowd I, if you're going to talk trash to me, I will probably call you out and talk to you about it, too, while I'm <laughs> on the court. AVP is beautiful for that. But honestly, I wouldn't ever, for younger kids, don't let it rattle you. If if you weren't good enough, they wouldn't be saying anything to you. So you should take it as a compliment that they feel that they have to rattle you um, because you're that good.
0: Now, with your home crowd being so big, was that comfortable? Or when you enter the NCAA tournament, is just a, a totally different animal. Like when you make a Final Four or Final and they're selling out like NHL slash NBA stadiums and there's 20,000 people there, like, does anything prepare you for that moment or as a Canadian going into this NCAA tournament, was that kind of a big eye opener about how big volleyball is and how special that tournament is for a lot of volleyball people all over the country? Cause I feel like with the conferences and everything that's around it, like people plan their year around, like attending that, no matter who the, who the host venue is.
1: Yeah. I would say that my time at Nebraska was kind of the transition Between like the before time and then now where there's like 20,000 plus people there. I remember it would always be like pretty big, but we hosted the final four in Omaha, Nebraska in 2006 and 18,000 people showed up. And that just blew the NCAA attendance record out of the water. And it's just continued on that trajectory ever since. I will say... You are never going to be prepared for that until you walk out there. I remember walking out in the final four, so many thousands of people, and your legs shake. Your legs shake. You have trouble walking like a little bit at the beginning. But I always made sure to take time to really absorb it and like look around during warm-up to really acclimatize and just get used to the atmosphere and the environment because it wasn't going away. It was something that I was going to have to play with. So I really took time to just soak it all in, in warm up and be like, okay, this is is my place for the next three hours and I'm going to love this. And having that time to reflect, it really made things better. So by the time I actually had to jump and do stuff and warm up, I was okay. But I think, you know, it's, it's special to ha- be in, have that impression and to get overwhelmed like that because it shows that you care. And I mean, the same thing happened to me in my first match at the Olympics. There was way less people at that match than there were in some of my NCAA matches. But it's just the magnitude of the moment. I cared so much and it was so special that... Uh, the same thing happened. I, my legs were shaking. I felt a little sick, but it was really, really cool.
0: And you mentioned during your recruiting, like when you were narrowing down schools, you wanted to win a national championship, like as a grade 12 student looking at universities, like that was on your goal. So how did coach cook and your teammates view that? And the reason I bring it up is we had Tori grill on the show and she mentioned Russ Rose and Penn state, like, they don't shy away from it every year it's about winning a national championship like when you lift weights on a Tuesday in October, it's to do so so you win a national championship. So I'm wondering, with you guys having the the outside pressure of being a favorite to do it, how much was it talked about inside? How much do you draw attention to it, or was it more about like a process and building like how much goal setting for the long term are you guys doing versus what can we do today just to be better at volleyball?
1: Um, I think it was both I mean. The goal at the start of, as soon as a season ended, the conversation turned to what are we going to do so that we're champions next year. Um, so it was very clear, very explicit. We are our goal is to win. But by the same token, we were very process oriented. We had our big goal. We had our big objective. We were not ashamed of articulating that and being very clear about how badly we wanted it. But we also knew that to reach that, it was the work that we were going to put in every single hour of every day because champions and, and greatness doesn't happen just because you want it to. So we were always very, very deliberate about what we were doing day in and day out. But yeah the goal always remained the same
0: and how do you as an athlete like to to value those like when you win a world championship or you win a national championship do you view it as oh this confirms what i already knew because i i made this goal and i worked really hard for it or do you deliberately like try to make time and enjoy it like how much do you enjoy it versus you move on to like your next goal right like you know what i mean because i think in in volleyball it's never going to be enough right like you guys won worlds and then there was a tournament the next week it felt like so you got to keep going and keep going so How do you find time to like appreciate these goals versus just kind of giving it a check mark of something that you, you said you were going to do and you did it and now you're moving on?
1: I think it's something that has to be very deliberate and it has to be a conscious choice to do it. I will say, yeah, I fall into that trap. I set goals, I I reach them and then it's like, okay, bigger goal, time for something else. And, And that's not always healthy or the best approach. I think there is so much that goes into achieving every single goal that that when it happens, it needs to be acknowledged. And you need to really reflect on that and enjoy it because there are so few people who who are able to do those things. So yeah, you're right. After after Worlds, we had to play the next week. And I will say, both of us were absolutely miserable because all we wanted to do was enjoy that win. And it's something that we talked through and we, we worked through after the tournament the following week. But um, I will say like after winning an NCAA championship, it's Christmas holidays. You have all the time (laughs) in the world to think about it. So I think it's way easier in, in that kind of arena to do that. I definitely think that you need to take time and celebrate your wins for sure.
0: And with you being in the NCAA, which has a lot of policies and rules in place, like I think any sports fan would know some horror stories where uh, a basketball player or a football player hires an agent and therefore they lose their eligibility. So with you knowing you wanted to play pro indoor, when did the talk start? Like, did you have to wait until after your senior season to even like – enter those conversations with an agent, even though you had a goal of it, like when did those conversations start? And when did the the offers or, or league offers from different places that you could manage start to really come true for you to take the next step in your career?
1: Um, I think I kind of had a slightly different experience than, than a lot of people in that I had some teams show up to my college matches during my junior and senior year at first I didn't know they were there but then I became aware of it so it was almost like the recruiting process again in that they were there they were watching we were not having conversations at all but I kind of bypassed the whole agent process in my first year because the teams had approached me so slightly different um, than, than normal, I would say.
0: And you mentioned it was like your recruiting process. So what did you do to narrow down the offers you were getting? Like, did you know that you wanted to be in Italy or you wanted to be at a top club? Like what were some of the goals that went into like your professional indoor club choice?
1: For my first year, my goal since I was in elementary school was to play in the Italian A1 league. and And one of the teams actually was from that league. So... After my senior season, spring break of that year, I actually went and visited the club. Um, I checked out the town, practiced with the team a little bit, watched a couple matches. And yeah, I felt comfortable there. So I I decided that, that I would try the Italian League for a couple of years.
0: Now, one thing I find fascinating about indoor volleyball, and some people are more comfortable with this than others, but... Did you like the idea of signing one-year deals at a time and kind of saying, like, I don't want to sign a two-year because if I outplay your expectations, I'm not going to get a raise because you've already got me. And volleyball clubs are subtly famous for not paying people they don't want to pay and they can cut you anyways, right? So how did you like to manage which leagues you were going to go to or when you made the choice to kind of go to Brazil or the Chinese League or Korea? Like, what went into those little decisions because... It's not like North American sports here where somebody signs like a seven year deal and they have a no movement clause where you really are betting on yourself one year at a time. Or if you like the club and they like you, you can obviously go back for a second year. But it wasn't it wasn't in writing that it was a two year deal. Right. So how did you manage like the professional off court aspect of of being an indoor volleyball player?
1: So I will say that in my first for my first contract, I signed a three year deal. So I went I had a great year my first year, second year, I wasn't really as happy. Um, so that's when I actually took on an agent, um, because I was like, is there some way that we can work this so I can like get out of this? Cause I, I just didn't want to play for that particular team anymore. So I did have experience with the multi-year deal. And after that, I would only sign one-year deals, um, because I did not want that situation to repeat itself. And I felt like, like you said, if I'm happy at a place and they are happy with me, I can always re-sign. And if I'm ready to move on, then I can move on to something different. So I, definitely adopted the mindset of signing the one-year deals and um i am definitely an advocate for that process
0: (laughs) and how did you find the expectations of being a foreigner like obviously playing right side there's a lot of expectations that you're going to get set a lot you're going to be expected to score like how did you deal with that pressure and then was there also any other pressures with like a language barrier just not being able to communicate with your teammates and coaches like How did you find everything that kind of goes into being a a Canadian professional volleyball player overseas?
1: Oh my gosh, where to start? Um, (laughs) So I will say, you know, being from Canada, we aren't as on the women's side, at least not as present on the international scene. Um, I will say a lot of athletes in top leagues and on top teams are very visible in what was at the time the grand prix but is now the vnl um the olympic games things like that so it's really easy for teams to see those players because we we weren't in that scene necessarily with our indoor team um people weren't really sure what they were getting with me other than like Proof of of how I played the season before. And it just so happens that I would always end up having to replace like a really great right side every single year. So one year I had to replace Ty Aguero, who was the top player on the Italian team. The next year I had to replace Shayla, who I'm sure everybody knows. And so people were like, well, who is this Canadian person? Like, Is she even capable of replacing Shayla? And it's like, you know, having to deal with that every single year, it's just like every year I would go in and be like, I'm going to prove to everybody that I deserve to be here. I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to give everything I have to be as good as possible to show the fans, the team, the owners, the coaches, anybody that I deserve to be here. So there was that aspect that was always in my mind. Being an opposite, yes, your job is to score points. Hitting, blocking, serving, score points. Um, I honestly never really felt pressure. I had... Nobody really remembers me as an indoor player, but I will tell you, I was very good at hitting high balls, which um, is very good in transition. So, yeah, I made my career on hitting high and hitting great angles, and I didn't have to think about it. I didn't feel pressure. I just would go up and take risks because my job was to do that. I will say as my career progressed and I was making more and more and more money, there were became pressures that I was putting on myself as far as, you know, thoughts of these people are investing so much money in me. I need to make sure that I I live up to that investment. That was not a healthy train of thought. It was not productive because it just added an element of stress to my life that I didn't need. And I don't even know if I needed to think that because I guarantee so many players do not think that, but for whatever reason I did. Um, So I would say as I got later in my career, that became the biggest stressor is making sure that I was living up to, to the investment these teams were putting in me.
0: And how did you deal with that? Like, did you have a pretty good support bubble or because because when I first went to Toronto, I was working with Christian Redmond, who's a pro beach guy. And I was like, man, it must be so awesome to be a professional athlete. And he's just like, man, volleyball is a little bit different. Like when things are going well, yeah, you're going to get messages and phone calls and people want to support you and be a part of it. But when things are going poorly, like it's pretty lonely. You have more free time than you think you do. So with you putting that pressure on you and the time zones different and you're overseas and you're away from family like did you just get like in a in a cycle with your own thoughts or how did you pull yourself out of it to perform like how did you deal with you know the expectations you're putting on yourself when you do have that downtime when it is only volleyball like was there anything you learned over that process
1: I will say that I was very very lucky to have my husband Adam with me he, when we got married, we, you know, made the commitment that our relationship was going to be the number one thing. And so he, when we got married, he stopped his job. He gave up his livelihood to just come and be with me. So he was always there and playing pro, especially playing pro indoor is very lonely. I did it several years by myself and yeah, you, 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 can only think about connecting with the people back home, but it becomes very obvious very quickly that everybody back home has a life and they are continuing on life as usual. (laughs) So they are not thinking about you or nearly as excited to talk to you as you are to talk to them when you get home from practice or from the gym or whatever. And so that's a really hard reality, especially being a really young pro at, at 21 or 22 years old. So Then being married and having my husband there, I had a built in support system to, to talk through my worries or vent or, you know, have somebody be there in person watching the game and offer me, me feedback because he is a volleyball guy and he understands it. So that changed my life. I think that having him there definitely extended my indoor career, um, a couple years longer than it, it might've been otherwise. I don't know. But yeah, he was, he was my big time support system during those years.
0: And we we've covered that you were part of the national team as a teenager. So being inside team Canada, since you were 16 or 17 and playing internationally, When did you come to the realization that that wasn't going to meet your Olympic goals? And and I'm not here to slight anybody or say anything offside, but the proof's in the pudding. It was going to be really tough for your cycle to make the Olympics as an indoor player, right? So when did you really start to look at beach volleyball being the best avenue for you to be an Olympian?
1: So I really started thinking about it hard after we failed to qualify for London in 2012 at that point I was 26 and you know it's you're not old but you're not young <laughs> and it's like okay the next Olympics I will be 30 and I was it was just a lot I I wasn't willing to devote another four years be 30 years old and potentially not have qualified again. So given the place that I was in my career, I felt like trying something new and trying to take things into my own hands was the best option. Beach and are not the same. I, I learned that the hard way. Um, <laughs> I, I thought they were gonna be very similar and they are not. So yeah, I, 2012 was the turning point And I didn't know, I'm ashamed to say this, but I didn't know any Canadian beach level players. Um, I had heard that Heather and Liz had almost qualified. And so I, I was like, okay, I will send a blind email to Heather and see if she knows anybody looking for a partner So I just sent this random email introducing myself to Heather Bansley and um, was like, hey, I'm thinking about playing beach. I was wondering if you know anybody who might be looking for a partner because I literally know nothing. And she wrote me back a couple days later and was like, well, why don't you play with me? And I was not expecting that response, (laughs) but I also wasn't about to say no. So yeah, that's how it. my beach volleyball journey got started.
0: Yeah, let's let's pull on that when you say it's it's different, because I think I, I'm a similar age as you. So I can say that you played OVA Beach Tour like you played a few beach, but obviously you would be playing indoor almost year round with either provincial team or national team and all the other stuff you had going on. So you, you had experience playing, maybe not at the level you wanted to and obviously being a top indoor player. So. Was it technically tactically that was a difference or was it honestly like indoor is way more organized in a sense where on the beach, you're organizing your own travel and doing that versus indoor. It feels like breakfast is at this time, bus leaves at this time and you, you kind of have the schedule given to you. So what were some of the the biggest things that jump out in your mind that you had to get used to, to playing uh, pro beach? Well,
1: first of all, let's not kid ourselves. OVA beach <laughs> <laughs> back in the early two thousands was like, every indoor player going out to Ash Bridges, which is basically an indoor court anyways, and just like playing indoor with a couple less people. It was like, (laughs) it was a disaster. None of us knew what we were doing. None of, we were just like doing indoor stuff just outside. So calling it beach volleyball might be a bit of a stretch, but (laughs) I think, you know, all of the above were kind of a shock to the system. You're completely right. Indoor, you are, it's a very coach and management driven sport. So you are told when to be where, what to wear, what time your meals are, who your roommate is. Um, Basically, you just have to show up to practice and make sure you don't forget your jersey. And then you're good. Beach volleyball is definitely a more player driven sport from start to finish as far as what do you want to work on in practice? Um, who do you want to play with? what, Who are we training with today? When do you want to go to the tournament? Everything is player driven. So that took a bit of an adjustment, but I would say just the biggest thing when I say that they're not the same sport is the technical and tactical aspect. I had been playing volleyball for... I was 26, so 16 years at that point, And my body was just, volleyball skills were ingrained in my body. I didn't have to think about them. And then all of a sudden, every single skill, I had to really pay attention to how I was executing it because they are just different enough that they just completely mess you up. So how I jump on my approach, how I load my arm on my swing, how my block timing, how I'm setting, just all of a sudden having to really think and pay attention to every single skill I'm doing was incredibly difficult. Then the tactical aspect is completely different. The, I, it's a chess game. And I mean, it's something that I love about beach, but it's definitely something that you have to learn. So yes. That is my answer to your question is just, yes, (laughs) everything was completely different. And I cried so much the first couple of years because I was so bad, like terrible. And I remember telling, like crying to Adam being like, I think I made a huge mistake. Did I just mess up my whole career? Like I was on a great track indoor, like, I think I just messed everything up. And on top of it, I suck at beach. And he, I give him a ton of credit. He was like, you need to stick this out. And you need to see this through for four years. Because if you don't, you're going to regret it the rest of your life. And lo and behold, the next year, things started to click. And it was just in time for Olympic qualification. So I have him to thank for that.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious what your what your feedback loops were or how you did you keep a journal? Did you set goals? Because I I would argue that you weren't bad. Like your first year, you still took a fifth on the world tour and you took a ninth. Like there were still some good results that I think a lot of teams would be happy with. But it feels like 2015, everything took off. Like that's when you won your first best Walker award. You were on the podium four times. Like when you're grinding it through, were you somebody who wants to watch a lot of video? Did you want coaches to give you feedback, doing it right, doing it wrong? Like was Adam learning beach as fast as you were and giving you little things that he was seeing? Like, how did it all come together where you felt like you you were bad or made a mistake to, I'm gonna qualify for the Olympics?
1: Um, Well, Adam showed up to every single practice from day one and would follow our coach Scott around the court. And he jokes now. He's like, Scott probably hated me, but he wanted to learn everything so that he could be as helpful, not only to me, but to our team as possible. So he would literally be Scott's shadow, listening to all his feedback, asking him thousands of questions just so he could learn and and get better in his beach understanding. And so we he would give me a lot of feedback Um, and we would talk about it together, but I developed a really strong relationship with our coach, Scott, and he was also an indoor player who moved to the beach. So the way that he was able to talk to me, um, through the thought processes of like, okay, this should feel like this indoor. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Now I know. Okay. And so I was able to work through things like that at the beginning, Scott is an incredibly technical coach, so we just broke things down to the bare minimum. And we still do that today. I love basics. Kids, always work on your basics. And then I I would watch video. I would see myself doing certain movements. I would watch it with Scott. I would watch it with Adam. And eventually, with enough repetition and practice and hearing the same thing a million times, it finally started to sink in. And I think I just expected the improvement to be way faster than it was meant to be. But then once it clicked, I saw that trajectory go up really quickly.
0: And if you had to kind of choose a time, when did it really feel comfortable? Because I think one cool thing about doing the show is we had Todd Rogers on and he talked when he had Phil he was really coaching him the first couple of years. And then it really got to the point where Todd would ask Phil what he would think and they would have the same ideas and it really started to click. And I think the AVP did such a good job with the broadcast this year that they were in your timeout circles. And it was just cool to hear Scott or Melissa ask you what you want to do on this player. And you're actually like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to keep this hand high, but I'm going to drop this hand. And that's how we're going to take away both shots or just little tactical things that were showing that like everybody was on the same page, but it was more of like, a question versus Scott just saying, Hey, I'm doing a shot chart. I'm, we need to do this. It was kind of like, what are you seeing? What am I seeing? And then you make the decision together. So it was there a point for you that you felt comfortable where it wasn't just as simple as Scott, what do I do? I, I need to learn this skill versus here's what I'm seeing. Can we do this?
1: Um, I really feel like it started in 2015. Actually the tactical aspect of the game came much quicker to me than the technical aspect So under, I'm very analytical, um, numbers, stats, patterns. Um, so I'm always keeping track of what's happening in a game and keeping notes in my brain, um, to exploit at a specific time. So, so that part for me came quickly. I didn't always feel like I could back it up with my (laughs) skills at the beginning because technically I felt like a disaster. So I kind of just took a backseat for a bit, but I felt like I really started to come into my own technically in 2015, so I felt more comfortable offering ideas and feedback um, because I didn't feel like a little Bambi so much anymore.
0: <laughs> Is there any moment that there was like a light bulb effect that like Scott probably thought was like a simple beach thing where you're kind of like, Oh, that does make sense. Cause I feel like the way you described OVA beach was just like, there wasn't a lot of coaching going on. You guys were playing an in indoor style on the beach. Like what was there? Anything that he pointed out, like other than like simple, simple stuff that I think kids do about like, where are they going to serve and who are they going to serve? Was there ever a beach tactic that you're kind of like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense where Scott's like, yeah, I would teach my juniors this?
1: <laughs> Probably everything. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. I will say, OK, in 2015, I finally figured out holding at the bottom of my block and like making sure to really straighten my elbows, like thinking, you know, hold, but get your arms straight as quick as possible. When I started thinking about that, I was able to get out of the vision and penetrate the net with my hands at a really quick speed. And I think that was a turning point for my blocking was just putting together this these two little pieces that were just a little off for so long. And I'm not sure he teaches juniors that because a lot of juniors, they don't like to block. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I will say for my blocking game was just a light bulb moment. Yeah, for
0: us, I think it'd be a wasting opportunity to not ask the uh, FIB best blocker, three-time award winner, some questions on blocking. So with beach players, I feel like there's just this cat and mouse game going on the whole match. So without giving away any trade secrets, what are some little things that a beach blocker can do to really influence it? Like you talked about staying out of their vision, timing your press. Like to me, blocking is the hardest skill because you can do everything right and not get the results you want, right? So what are some things that you would pass on to a blocker who wants to block and be at the net, but what are some little tricks about like even the AVP example that you were going to keep your line side hand high and press with your, your inside hand to take away like the cut shot and the highlight and roll. Like what was there other little tactical things that you would like to pass on or don't uh, think Scott will get too mad if you give up (sighs) little secrets on the show here.
1: I will start off with the thing that I tell all young blockers is that being a blocker, on the beach especially in the women's game can be incredibly frustrating just because like a lot of the time you just feel like you're spinning in circles and not really doing anything women don't hit necessarily as much as as the men do and so the defender is is required to dig so much more so as a blocker as a female blocker You need to be confident and secure to know that if your defender is making digs, it means that you have taken away what you said you were going to take away. If you are measuring your success as a blocker on how many blocks you get, you're going to be miserable because so much of blocking on the beach is taking away one or two things and cutting down options for your defender. So... I will start with that for sure. For blocking, different things that you can do is you can, I think you always need to figure out if the hitter is looking at the blocker or the defender. And so that can will contribute to your defensive decisions, whether the blocker should make some fake moves with their body and mess them up visually, or if the defender should juke around back there and, and mess them up. So it's always important to figure that out. You can switch up your timing. Some hitters hit really quick and you have to get over the net faster, um, whereas others are always waiting. So mess up your timing. You can do visual moves like stepping into their vision and taking the opposite away. You can try to shot block, which is reaching really high instead of over the net. You could late pull. There are so many strategies that you can do to try to elicit a response from your from the attacker. Um, but it's just about being creative and and not doing the same thing all the time.
0: Now, is there anyone who comes to mind that messes up your rhythm as a blocker? Like, I think when they did the World Championships, like the camera work there was really good if you can get access to the TV feed. But somebody like Duda obviously has great vision. So does it? <laughs> take a little bit extra to mess with her. Cause I feel like she might be one of the players who sees both. When you say, are they looking for the blocker defender? Like she might be surveying both right with her vision and what she can do with shot choices. So like, is this something you're, you're going through the game and trying to access, like obviously you have a plan, but with no access to a coach on the FI world tour, how are you and Melissa checking into saying, I think she's seen this or she's seen that. And then make your plan from there. Cause I feel like on the beach, the plan at the start of the game, isn't always the plan when it's 18, 17 in the second set. Right.
1: Right. So Melissa and I are checking in pretty much every point. Um, We think it's really, really important to do that just, you know, to make sure that we, we're both seeing the same thing, to make sure that we're on the same page, see if we want to make any adjustments. So we are talking to each other all the time. Also the way that we approach video, you know, we're not expecting to, to get 15 points off of what we absorb through video. We are picking up on tendencies that we can exploit at a really important point in the game, whether it's right before a side switch or a technical or something like that. So if we can steal a couple points from the video that we're watching, that's a win. Um, so I wouldn't say we definitely go in with a plan, but we are not glued to that plan by any means I completely agree with you in saying that Duda is one of the few players in the world who, who can see both. So, in that circumstance, we need to, one of us is, we will keep things the same and then one of us will make an adjustment and see if that makes a difference. And then, if that doesn't work, okay, let's switch it and try this. There are so many options of things you can do to elicit a response, but if you find something that elicits the response that you want from the hitter, then you need to bank that in your memory because and hold on to that later because you want to be able to use it when you have to.
0: Nice, nice. Not to skip over too much stuff here, but I feel like I promised you an hour and right around there. But uh, we've had uh, Melissa on the show and obviously her old family just – Awesome, awesome volleyball family and just great energy every time you see any of them. So what have you enjoyed about playing with Melissa and and training and kind of going through the journey? Because as Canadians, you guys made the maybe a tough choice, maybe an easy choice, but to train in the US full time, right? So you've made some life commitments to pursue this. So obviously, if you're going to do things like that, you got to enjoy who you're playing with. So what have you enjoyed so far about playing with Melissa?
1: Oh, my goodness. It is. It's been quite the journey with Melissa. Um, There have been a lot of super high highs. We have fought through some ups and downs together. But I think, you know, we are completely different as people and as athletes. But we have found this way to just combine our skills in a way that it just allows us both to shine. Um, I feel like my weaknesses, she makes up for those and then, and vice versa. We we balance each other so perfectly. And whereas I am the more analytical um, mind, Melissa's definitely more of a feel player. So we are able to bring balance into everything we do, which I think is so important we have made this commitment to each other of just valuing our relationship above all else. And, you know, I've, I've been talking so much about world championships and stuff, but I really, really feel like what we were able to do at world championships is a testament to to our relationship and the work that we've put in to being the best teammates possible. I can't imagine having, shared that with anybody else. I, I love stepping on the court with her. I love when it's 2020, and she turns to me and says, Are you having fun? And just like breaks the tension. And, you know, there are just so many more ups and downs to come, I know. And I'm just so grateful to be able to walk beside her in this journey.
0: Yeah, she when she was on the show, she mentioned a a really cool story about world championships where she felt like going in, you guys weren't playing your best ball and you didn't like I don't want to speak for but listeners can go back to the episode like she didn't feel like you were the favorite or it was like a done deal that you were going to win but one moment that stood out in her mind is when you guys were leaving to get to the shuttle to play the final you looked at her and said the next time we're in this hotel room we're going to be world champions and that just kind of gave her like the let's go like you're you're switched on and ready to go so do you remember how you felt going into that tournament did you get, did you think you were playing better ball than maybe she did and and what made you have that feeling going into the final
1: um, the two tournaments leading into World Championships were not great; <laughs> they were pretty bad. So, no, we absolutely were not the favorites going in. But I just saw it as such an opportunity, not only for our team, but just for volleyball in Canada and Canadian sport. And I knew that I know that when we are playing well, that we're great. And so the first day that we even got to Hamburg, like a week before the tournament, I was like, we we could be world champions. We have the opportunity to be world champions. And it sounds so cliche and so corny, but honestly, every single day leading up to the tournament, I was like, we could be world champions. We're going to be world champions. And yeah, hearing you say what I said before the final, like I got goosebumps again, but I I feel like so often we go through the motion of just being like, oh, another tournament. But how often do we go out and just take it and believe more than anything that we are going to win? And I didn't want to have any regrets of that tournament. I wanted our team to believe 100% that this was ours for the taking. And so I repeated it every single day. And so that we just – it was in our minds and we could believe it and think about it and make it a reality. So – no, we weren't playing great, but I always think we're going to win because every match and every point is an opportunity to be better. And and I knew that what had happened in the weeks before didn't matter. It was a new start.
0: And we, we kind of touched on this earlier where we mentioned there was a tournament right after and it's a bit of a letdown. But I, I'm wondering if, if everything was optimal and, and running the way that it typically does. How would you guys navigate this? Because this is new for beach volleyball to know that you have a spot in the Olympics where usually it's like, correct me if I'm wrong, usually qualify in June or July and the games are usually like later that summer, right? Like it's pretty short notice when you finally know that, okay, we're in the top 15. We got that ticket or other teams have to go to the continental qualifier. So with you guys knowing this far in advance, is that calming knowing that or or is Scott still really pushing and driving that like we're, we're not going to participate at the Olympics. We're going to win the Olympics and we still have bigger goals ahead of us.
1: I think given the way the world is right now, it's calming. <laughs> um, not knowing what's going to happen a month or three months or a year from now is, is disconcerting discus- in a lot of aspects, but knowing that we are one of four teams who has a spot for sure, for sure, um, has definitely helped navigate this time we are not shy about saying what our goals are we have had a taste of what it feels like to be on top with world championships and it is an addicting feeling and so i think we are more motivated than ever um, to win gold in tokyo and we know that this time is out of our control but we're choosing to you know take full advantage of the things that we can control so that we're ready to go when when we get the green light and I am I'm so so excited we are proceeding as normal we are following our schedule as normal we're not trying to do anything special but we are so motivated for Tokyo and to win
0: If you had to label what the addiction is, I'm just curious when you mentioned that, like, is it committing to a goal and earning it? Is there a touch of ego that says, I'm the best in the world? Is there a legacy component that, like you mentioned, you want to build Canadian volleyball and leave it in a better place? Like, is it all these things? Or when you say, like, it's an addicted feeling, what do you enjoy the most when you're on the podium? Oh, my goodness.
1: I just keep going back to the feeling, like, right following the the final point and just thinking, you know, there were so many times through that tournament that we could have thrown in the towel and we just refused and we refused to lose. And we turned to each other and relied on each other this whole time. And even when we could have given up, we chose to be better and that feeling of accomplishment and and just deciding together to be one and to work towards that that greatness is, that is the feeling that's addicting. And just knowing that it all paid off and it was for something. Um, obviously, hearing the national anthem and standing on top of the podium is an incredible feeling. But just like understanding all the spots along the way when you could have said, okay, I've had enough we'll let them have it and choosing not to is just so incredible.
0: Yeah. I I have to ask is Melissa's temperament always like that when you say like it's 2020 and she asks if you're having fun, like is she like that when it's the semis versus the Swiss and the first set's really tight or when you're in the finals against the Americans and, and every point seems like it's tight. Like, is she just carry herself that way all the time?
1: No. Um, I think, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time together, so I see Melissa at her best and at her worst, and she can say the same thing about me. But no, it's not always like that. There are times when, when she'll turn to me and be like, I need help or I'm gonna shit my pants right now. But we do that for each other because we know that we always have each other's back. So she, don't get me wrong, she's a very happy person and she is a great teammate and friend But no, everybody has moments of doubt. Everybody has struggles. But I think the fact that we can lean on each other in those moments and be real and vulnerable together is, is what has made our relationship so safe, is we don't feel like we have to be what we're not, or we can just be what we're feeling any moment.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's good to hear the behind the scenes and see how you guys do it. Uh, another cool project just to switch off your playing career that I wanted to talk to you about is you've started next level consulting. I'm just curious what made you want to get involved with this with, uh, I mean, all the free time you have, why not start a side business, (laughs) but I'm wondering, uh, what made you want to do this and what made you want to kind of help athletes with their recruiting and their post-secondary goals?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of touched on earlier how in Canada, we aren't really aware of the opportunities out there in the sport. I mean, I've been playing professionally for, I guess, 12 or 13 years now, and I still get asked, like, oh, do you even make any money doing that? And it, it breaks my heart because, you know, it, volleyball is such a great game. And the fact that people think that it has to stop um, after high school or even after university is just terrible, especially when people have such a love for it. And I think that there's just a really big lack of education as far as like, what does it mean to play in the NCAA? What does it mean to get a scholarship? And just to so I wanted to educate people about those opportunities. But I also think back to how many people helped me in my career to get to where I am today. And if I could just be that in a small, small way for somebody else. Then that would be amazing. So yeah, I offer recruiting support. I do coaching, um, mentorship. Um, you know, I people send me their video and I I offer them feedback on on their play. Any way that I can contribute to to somebody's growth or skill development or or to explore a possibility in the sport, I I wanted to do that. So that's why I started. Next level, and it's been so rewarding and it's been so cool to develop these relationships with these these athletes and their families.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And what's the best way to get a hold of you? Like would you prefer Instagram or the website? Or what's the best way that people can check this out, learn more and, and get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, they can send me a message on Instagram, next level consult, or at next consulting.com. No ease. In the level so yeah all the information is online or feel free to send me a message even on my personal one if if you feel more comfortable
0: awesome yeah i'll definitely add that to the show notes so we're we're right around an hour here and i know that's what i promised you and i know you're busy and i'm sure adam's you know excited to start your evening together but uh <laughs> one thing we can't make an exception is just somebody who's played at your level something funny or odd has had to happen in your volleyball career so i was wondering if you could give us just a funny story before we let you go.
1: I told you before the show that this, it wasn't really funny in the moment. It was more traumatic, but I feel like my whole experience playing in Korea was just a trip. So, I mean, the stories are endless. So I'm just filtering through my brain for one of them. But I think the one is one of the first days that I got to practice in Korea I was on the court playing and some girl, I guess she screwed something up. And the next thing I know, the coach has taken off his shoe and was hitting the girl with it. And then after, he made her stand in the middle of the court and she wasn't allowed to move and he just like hit balls at her for like five minutes. And I was standing watching this like, looking at everybody else's face being like, is this normal? Should we say, should we say something? Does she need help? But everybody just was going along business as usual. And that pretty much set the tone for what volleyball in Korea is like. Oh my gosh. So if any of you want to go, no, just kidding. It it wasn't all that, but I've got so many more stories where that came from.
0: (sighs) Yeah. To me, that's, that's far more than just like a cultural difference. Like that's just, offside where we grow up right so that's so interesting to hear that happen and how nobody really got too fired up about it
1: no or like play a five-cent match they're not happy with how the team performs so you drive in the bus back and then you go to practice right away at like 10 p.m <laughs> <laughs> so like sprint like 10 kilometers after a three-hour practice And I am no runner, let alone (laughs) after a three-hour practice. So obviously, I could not run full 10K. So their solution to that problem, you must be overweight if you cannot run 10 kilometers after a three-hour practice. So I had to go get my body fat tested from the gym. (laughs) And of course, the results were conclusive. I was fat, and that's why I couldn't run. Oh, my gosh
0: i feel like the stories are just starting and we'll have to get you back on the show again to tell some more because uh the it's not my place to say it as a male person in the volleyball community but even your sister hinted when she was in kentucky like some nutritional stuff and some body type stuff where i I don't know why that's the go-to for so many programs to just talk about like it's your body type or your overweight underweight but uh i think it comes up way too frequently and doesn't always have the most value in it like it, it usually sounds offside when you get down to it
1: oh yeah I mean, any. T- you told me like some Brazil, some players had guns pulled on them in Brazil.
0: Yeah, Jake and Dallas had a story. You know, apparently, them. if you um, put like five guys in switches. a taxi, like yeah, you, you, there's some there's some stuff going on where if you put five guys in a taxi, they must be up to no good, so they got pulled over and stuff like that. So once they found, uh, a-
1: they were pulled over. Oh no, this happened on the street. Some dude pulled a gun on the street, oh. and another guy pulled a knife another day. But. I mean, honestly, I could write a book for the amount of weird stuff that has happened in my career. Um, Yeah. At least I got pulled over by somebody (laughs) instead of some random guy.
0: It's just so funny to hear them tell the story. They're like, best case scenario, we're getting robbed. Worst case scenario, like, we're going to die. Like, nobody here speaks English. They've all got guns. They're mad at us, and we don't know why.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's... uh... Adam, I think I'll have to write a book of all the weird stuff that's happened because it's outrageous.
0: Well, it's good that playing volleyball at a high level gives you a certain life experience that other people don't get to access to. So that's, that's one of the perks, I feel like.
1: True. <laughs> Very true.
0: <laughs> awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time and letting us see behind the scenes and everything that's gone into it. Obviously, we'll, we'll be rooting for you when we get back to normal and everything gets going again. But For now, thanks for sharing your stories and and best of luck with everything else you've got going on.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.